Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, Jettison Cocoon. Uh, well, we're going to have a lot of puns in this episode, I have a feeling, but uh, to, to aid us in this journey, making a splash this week and diving in to our movie, we have none other than Mark O'Connell. Hello. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. I haven't got long. I've only got like four minutes of air, so please be quick, all right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we're all wearing our orange, you know, lycra outfits for swimming, so we're all ready to go for this. Uh, that might give you a hint for what the film is, but um, before we tackle the film itself, Mark, you've got a fascinating story in connection to the Bond universe. And for those who don't know anything about you, just just give us the, the story, really. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm a sort of writer, author, journalist, blogger, all of the above. But um, a few years back, I um, a few people said, just write a book about Bond, because I was writing books about, uh, writing forum posts about Bond, and they were getting good traffic. And I suddenly realized, ah, I do have a sort of, personal spine or personal sort of um, reason to do it and my grandfather for I think well well over 30 years was um, he worked for Eon Productions he worked for the Broccoli family he was Cubby's chauffeur house sitter um, babysitter he would do the school run he would do the, sometimes he'd do the food run he'd do the Sinatra run he'd do a lot of um, sort of random things and he loved it and he, he barely spoke a word about it which is probably why they kept him on for so long but then I just thought that there's something there. So I did this sort of fever pitch meets 007 uh, story called Catching Bullets, Memoirs of a Bond Fan. And it's kind of opened up a massive, big personal and career world for me as well. So it's all been, all been a good journey so far. So what was your exposure then to uh, the James Bond world then? If he, he mm. didn't really speak that much about that whole working you know, life. Well, he was terrible for gossip. So, well, I well, he wasn't terrible for it. He just wouldn't <laughs> give any. So he wouldn't give any insight. So I remember having to sort of have when I was sort of nine or ten, I would be literally in the back seat of his car, and I would hear, I would hear names like Roger Pinewood, Barbara Dana, uh, Paris, uh, View to Kill, because that was kind of that was View to Kill was the film where I was first really really aware of that he was you know driving and working behind the scenes a little bit um and my dad took me to see octopus chief i famously sort of say this a lot of times that i was I'm, i wanted to go and see return of the jedi for the second time but and i had quite a sort of uh uh star wars fan meltdown at the turnstiles <laughs> Odeon. um and my dad's i think it actually probably was kicking and screaming because i was also one of those newly divorced kids so i knew how to ramp it up and get what i wanted and and i'm an only child so it was, it was a delicious uh, combination but he i remember sitting at the guildford Odeon, seeing octopus on its first saturday of release and being just bowled over by it and i i was barely seven you know imagine just a seven-year-old going to watch a daniel craig bond film um, and being bowled over by it hopefully there are some but i just got bowled over by the, the sense of production the sense of expense if that makes sense i remember just sort of thinking that oh, there's there's expensive nice things in this film whether it's a hot air balloon or a big train or a circus tent and that kind of got me hooked and then the first bond film i really really anticipated was a view to a kill which is kind of my favorite bond film i um, although it, that's less controversial than when i first started saying that a few years back because a lot of people have warmed to that one it's not the best but it is my favorite that was actually my first one that i ever saw so uh mm. It's not my favorite, but I have obviously a lot of nostalgia for that one. Mm. 
it gets a lot of kicking and knocking, and I actually think you know, it's quite a pure, simple Bond film in an era of very complicated, angsty Bond films. Some of those John Glenn ones, um, well, they are getting better attention, but they deserve a little bit more. Definitely. Well, you, you said maybe like a personal favourite. Is there any other favourite Bond films you point to, if people ask? Um, I, it's usually easier to say what Bond films I don't like, um, and I, but I rarely say, that, well, that's not enough, um, but I rarely go there. Um, no, I, I love Octopus Interview to Kill, I love Divers Are Forever, I'm, I think, oddly, uh, You Only Live Twice is one of Connery's best, I, I, I really love his performance in it, I know everyone says he's bored, but I actually think he's playing a bored, aloof agent in Japan, of course he should look a bit bored and aloof. Um, I, I think Skyfall is a work of British cinema genius, I really, really rate that. I also like Quantum of Solace. I, I, try, I just liked its simplicity, how it took away some of the boxes that we need, we felt we had to have ticked all the time. And I, I always say that Casino Royale is a slap in, is the slap in the face or the punch in the face, but Quantum of Solace is the bruise and how it heals afterwards. Um, but I also love Moonraker, um, Goldfinger. I'm less less of a natural moth to the Thunderbolt flame, so this could be an interesting one. Not, I'm, not against, but it's one that I've sort of thought and revisited perhaps the least over, you know, over my Bond life tenure. So it'll be interesting to sort of have a chat about it. Well, I, I think we got the point. I see what you did there. Mm. Well, to be <laughs> fair, that does lead us on beautifully to my question, which, Cam, what are we doing today? We are tackling 1965's Thunderball, starring Sean Connery as Agent 007. I'm waiting for you to sing it, Cam. Oh, of course. Oh my god, this is the most difficult one, the Tom <laughs> Jones. Thunderball. There we go. That was, There's my that was awful. Yeah, we should end okay, this here, thank you, I think. Thank you. Yeah. I'm ashamed of myself, and uh, well, yep, there we have it. <laughs> okay, moving so swiftly on. <laughs> uh, I think before we tackle our initial experiences on it, let me just read out the letterbox.com synopsis, because this is quite a fun one, actually. Thunderball. Look up, look down, look out. A criminal organization has obtained two nuclear bombs and are asking for a £1 million ransom in the form of diamonds in seven days, or they will use the weapons. The Secret Service sends James Bond to the Bahamas to once again save the world. Heck yes. I love that look up, look down, look out. That's amazing. Yeah, it's on all the posters, I think, that one. It is, yeah. And they had a lot of good posters, that that film was Beautiful, beautiful poster work. All that, all those sort of McGuinness oranges are delicious. Yeah, I'm looking at a few of them now. We don't make posters like that anymore. No, no, Mm-mm. no, no. no. It's, everyone says oh, it's a lost art. No, it's an, it's an evolved art. Um, I, I, I still think there's scope to do that sort of imagery. But I think what perhaps we have lost is that sense of perspective on posters. That those designers utterly got the sense of space or lack of it, or to leave it alone. We. You know, a lot of fan posters, even real posters now, just fill fill it out too much. There's at least some breathing space. And those Thunderball posters are perfect examples of it. Well, speaking of the film, then let's talk about our first time encountering it before we get to maybe our thoughts now. Um, I think, well, Mark, you're our guest. You go first. When did you first watch Thunderball, and what did you first think of it then? I re- I remember quite vividly when I first saw it. It's one of the big chapters in in catching bullets um and it's quite curious that we just come out of a euro uh, football tournament as they say um 
so in in the eighties we had World Cups, obviously, and they would ha- there'd be like two schedules. So if Chat- if BBC One was showing an England match, uh, ITV would have like a schedule B, and you never really knew until the morning what the schedule was going to be. But on I think it was Sunday the twenty eighth of June. I'm 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 literally plucking that. I might be slightly wrong, but they um what presumably BBC had the football match, and it might have actually been the Maradona infamous um, England Argentina game. But ITV had Thunderbolt, and that's when I first saw it. And I remember being quite excited that um, you know, the other channel was going to show a Bond film in its place. Um, and I stayed there with my videotape, and I punched out the adverts for all seven hours of the film. Um, it would have been nine hours with the Rumbelows and uh, Smith's ads. And that was my first experience of it, and I, I kind of loved it. it I, I, I think I heard you guys sort of mention this the other day, or someone similar, that... Um, I grew up with Roger Moore. He was he's my bond. So the idea of Sean Connery it was a bit like your parents' bond. Um, so you kind of watch the films, and it's a bit like when you find some of your parents' vinyl. You you put it on and you listen to it, and you like it, but maybe you're a bit too young to take it in and appreciate it. And, and my mum had amazing and still does has amazing vinyl. But I and I always think Thunderball is a bit, a bit of one of those black and white vinyl moments of bond when you're young and then when you get old you start to take it in and I, it's not until perhaps 20 years after I saw it that I fully appreciated its Bond pop art phenomenon apex moment that it represents okay so it sounds like at the time you were a fan obviously I think I think the age probably helped as well yeah it's very gadgety it's it's a great kid you know it's a great kids Bond film which is important because there's less and less newer films that perhaps let the, the really young kids in but it, you know it's, it's underwater it's sharks it's it's pressy button things it's jet packs it's so there's a lot of kit in it and kit lets um new younger bond fans in sometimes moonrake and golfing being other examples uh what about you cam so i actually vividly recall the first time i saw it and you know as i've said before i was a roger moore kid so like that's in my mind what james bond was but i'd seen um goldfinger had won me over a little more and i'd really enjoyed that one after the um (laughs) not so great experience of from russia with love which as a kid bored me um but i remember my parents were having company over for some sort of get together um maybe a wild party i don't know but um their way of getting me out of the place was basically they had we had a tv in the kitchen and they set it up in my room and they were like basically don't come out (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> and they rented me thunderball to watch and i'd never seen it before and i was just excited to watch a bond movie so i curled up on my bed and watched thunderball and i was just enthralled because i was a kid who loved sharks like i don't think we can really even overstate how much i loved sharks like i have and had a shark's jaw on my wall i collected shark's teeth i had a poster on my wall ranking all the different types of shark on viciousness level um i had also done volunteer presentations to my class about sharks so believe me i was obsessed with sharks and so thunderball was like crack i was just like oh my god there's a pool of sharks there's sharks like showing up in this whole fight at the end to me this was like james bond nirvana a merging of my two favorite things james bond and sharks (laughs) fair enough yeah I can't shake the image of little Cam Smith sitting in the kitchen while his parents are having a rager next door, like a key swapping party or something. I just, that image I, I wasn't in, my in head the now. kitchen. I wasn't in the kitchen. I was in my room. They took the kitchen TV and put it in my room. Ah, oh, that that makes yeah. it a little better, and that's yeah. fine. Yeah, they're, they're downstairs having fun. 
It's just like the Bee Gees playing on a loop. <laughs> That's a strange childhood you have there, my friend. But but great, but great. I also want to point out the voluntary presentations. So like no one asks you to do this. You were just talking about sharks in front of the class. Yes. I actually approached the teacher and asked if I could do a presentation on sharks. I did a presentation on the making of a view to a kill age nine at school. Uh-huh. Oh, um, wow. I don't remember it going down well. I don't remember what the grade or the end result was, but we all had to do talk about something. And I, I was like little nine-year-old obsessed by a view to a kill that was about to come out soon. I remember just doing, oh, it must have been awful. Because um, the Catholic nuns love to hear about Christopher Walken and Grace Jones movies. They, they love it. <laughs> You're talking about blimps for ten minutes. Just... Yes, yeah. Well, well, ah, we well we did have one of the blimps came over our school. One of the Zorin blimps came over on a test run, um, with with one of the dummies hanging off it, which was a little bit crazy when you're sort of on the school dinner break. This this is before we knew what it was for though. So, but yeah, the Zorin blimp or a test run went over our school once lunchtime. Did you hear anyone shouting, Max? No, no, no. Just the noise. Really, quite a sinister noise. So that you know, like, why did Tanya Roberts not hear a very <laughs> yes. thunderous engine the size of a football stadium coming up behind her in that film? <laughs> That's the least of it. Um, as for me, I uh, I think I first watched this in its entirety when I did my rewatch about five years mm. ago. I think it's one of those films I had seen on ITV or BBC at some point. But as a kid and not really paid it much attention, I liked Bond growing up, but it was more the Brosnans that did it for me. The the older films, air quotes, didn't necessarily grab me as much. Um, and so it was when I did my rewatch. And I have to say, I was somewhat sour on this film when I watched it the first time. I found it to be a, a bit bloated, mm. I, uh, maybe too much water stuff in it. And um, it was definitely a... Because going sequentially from Doctor No to Frustrant with Love, Goldfinger, it was like building up in greatness. And this was the first time it kind of went, hmm. I think they were, gr- they were building upon the success of, of Goldfinger. Goldfinger tipped Bond into, into pop, as I say, pop culture phenomenon time. Uh, Goldfinger was the beginning of Bond's Beatles moment, mm. yeah, figuratively and uh, metaphorically. Um, and they, they clearly wanted to build on that. And I I would say uh, that Moonrake, uh, sorry, uh, Goldfinger introduced movement into the Bond films. We have the moving car. We have its, you know, its dashboard is moving around. Uh, Goldfinger's uh, office uh, meeting place is moving around. There's a whole sense of movement to the film. And they take that with um, Thunderball and they kind of add the movement comes from the geography and then the cars. So we, ha- we obviously have that mid-60s Pan Am jet sage uh, sort of blue seas Nassau world and I think bearing in mind that it was totally new it, you know it was as new as maybe seeing a DB5 spluttering oil in Goldfinger to see you know sharks from above in a sort of azure clear blue sea that was that was kind of important um, to cinema at that time and, and they knew that no one had done that or seen it much in those eras on big screen so sometimes the film does begin to suffer from that longer that that's it's there's a lot of establishing in Thunderball maybe we'll, we'll go there later but I agree it's got it's it's got pacing issues but maybe at the time it didn't um but it was certainly a longer bomb it was the first big long bomb film mm. whereas the others at the sort of clipping hour and 45-ish um up until that point yeah I, I think I just I just took it as a piece of work I didn't really contextualize it at the time but I I I, I will 
talk about what I feel about it now, having watched it four or five times since I did that rewatch in a little bit. But before we get there, Cam, I want you to put on your mink gloves and rub us mm. down with some information. <laughs> well, um, I don't know if you guys know this, but the um, issues with Thunderball are uh, quite well known. <laughs> There's a, a lot of, um, well, we're going to be talking about the Thunderball effect in the future of James Bond as well. But uh, the journey starts really, um, you have the Casino Royale novel being published in 1953. In 1954, they adapt it for an episode of the show Climax. And so Ian Fleming, a light bulb goes off. He's like, hey, I think we can make James Bond a cinematic creation. Let's get him on the big screen. So in 59, he made a deal with Xanadu Pictures to make the first Bond film. And he wrote a 63-page draft. It was called James Bond and the Secret Service. And it introduced, um, you know, elements like Spectre and pitted Bond against the Mafia. And it was the loose outline of Thunderball. And he decided he needed to flesh this out a little more. He needs people with Hollywood experience. So he brought in uh, Kevin McClory, who was a second unit director who'd worked on Around the World in 80 Days. And he'd written a film called The Boy and the Bridge, which was a coming of age film from 59. And he also brought in a guy named Jack Whittingham who had written a um, Prince and the Pauper um, version for Disney. He'd also done a ton of just smaller films and TV. And they fleshed out some ideas, and Whittingham wrote a original screenplay, kind of combining the three guys' ideas. And it was going to be called Longitude 78 West, and it has a lot of the elements that are in place for what would become Thunderball. Uh, one of the things that was changed, though, was the character of Domino, um, Whittingham changed the name to Gabby because he did not like the name Domino. I don't like Gabby, so... Yeah, no. Gabby doesn't have the same ring to it. <laughs> it's not got that mystique as you say Domino. I was like, ooh, tell me more. Yeah, yeah. So this movie had an August 1960 start date and then financing fell through. But unbeknownst to McClory and Whittingham, Fleming was simultaneously writing his next Bond novel called Thunderball using all the elements that were in that screenplay. The novel was published in 61, and Eon wanted to actually make that their first Bond film when they got the rights, but they were um, aware that there was some issues around it, but they, they weren't aware at the time that it was um, Whittingham's screenplay that really had led into this novel. And they hired Richard Maybaum to write the original treatment for the first ever Eon Bond film. But... At this point, McClory filed a lawsuit um, during the writing process, and McClory was going after Fleming because of this whole deal, and he was not happy that this was being turned into a movie. He wasn't going to get a cent out of it. And Eon thought, okay, this is kind of ugly. Let's just back off this one. Let's start with Dr. No instead and come back to Thunderball later. So a couple years go by. You know, Bond blows up in Dr. No. It's a you know hit film. Uh, and there's a 1963 court case that awarded McClory the film rights for Thunderball and credit for all three. So if you look at the credits, it has a story to Fleming, McClory, and Whittingham, and an original screenplay for Whittingham that the movie's based on. And um, McClory was like, okay, I got the film rights to Thunderball. It's time for me to start my own Bond franchise. And so he uh, looked at um, some other actors like Peter O'Toole, Lawrence Harvey, Richard Burton, but decided that it might get confusing for audiences. This is the 60s. Nowadays, you could put out like 17 different Bond films. They'd drop on different streaming networks and no one would care. But in 1960s, to drop out another Bond film 
would be very confusing. So he decided the best idea was just team up with Eon and let's make Thunderball and make it, you know, a big smash hit film. So he did that. It was a little bit um, messy to work out that deal, but they ultimately did it. He got a producer job on the film. If you watch the film, he's one of the producers and Cubby and Seltzman are exec producers on the film. And um, they, it's interesting because they'd actually, Eon wasn't sure that they would have things worked out to get this movie, you know, made on time. So they actually had already uh, written a screenplay for Honor Majesty's Secret Service to follow Goldfinger. Which is why it's in the end credits of Goldfinger. I don't remember. It, some of them get a little mangled. Yeah, I'd have to go back and check the tape on that one. But nonetheless, you might be right, Scott. Um, so they wanted to get... Um, Guy Hamilton back because Goldfinger had been a smash hit and he really wasn't that interested he said he had nothing left to do with the character which would not be the case when the more era rolled around and he did a couple in a row mm-hmm. uh, so instead they brought back Terrence Young who'd done Dr. No and from Russia with Love and they were working with Richard Maybaum's um, draft at this point and he had added a character named Fiona Kelly who was an Irish assassin and this character would go on to become Fiona Volpe. But at this point, she, they were playing up the Irish element. And um, they started doing casting. Um, now, Eon was really eyeing Julie Christie for the role of Domino. Julie Christie was a very acclaimed actress in her time. And it's interesting that they were actually looking for an actress, which so often they would you know, try to cast models or what have you. But they were at a certain point looking at Julie Christie to take this role. But... They kind of lost interest in her, but they really liked Raquel Welch. And they cast her as Domino. And that was history. (laughs) Nope. So what happened was Raquel Welch was signed to do Thunderball. She was going to play Domino. But Richard Zanuck at 20th Century Fox was like, hold up. I need you to release this woman from her contract. I need her in a movie called Fantastic Voyage. And so Raquel Welch was out of James Bond. And that is the timeline we live in now. So, uh, you know me not knowing enough about cinema. Is Fantastic Voyage a big film? It was in the time. It was a very influential sci-fi film. It's about the um, ship that goes, gets shrunk down inside a person's bloodstream. It's uh, a, a really right. good movie, actually. Mm. It's, cut, yeah, it's one of those key 60s sort of comic strip looking type films and did inspire uh, Inner Space in 87. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... Uh, in sort of a, in retrospective, was that a good move for her? I, I personally would say yes. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, Raquel Welsh became Raquel Welsh uh, in lots of ways. And that was kind of one of the most, uh, I think it was the attack of the, was that her, the, um, the prehistoric movie. I'm not a massive uh, Raquel Welsh. Oh, is it uh, 10, 10 million BC or 1 million BC yeah, or yeah, something? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and there was other actors as well. I'm sure I'll, I'll let you carry on though. Mm-hmm. So um, we should note also Raquel Welch became iconic for Fantastic Voyage for wearing a white um, like scuba suit. So either way, scuba suits were in her future. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And uh, interesting film because it, it starred a lot of uh, Bond people as well, uh, notably Donald Pleasance, who's one of the scientists in the film. Yeah, and actually produced by the uh, the guy who produced the um, Flint films. So Mm, there's definitely mm, some mm. spy connections going on with that movie. Mm, mm, Um, They also approached Faye Dunaway for the role of Domino, and she was really close. But her agent was like, don't do it. 
so she didn't. <laughs> but, again, things turned out just fine for Faye Dunaway. She did Bonnie and Clyde a couple years later, and yeah. Does she have the same agent as George Lazenby, by any chance? It's quite possible. <laughs> so. Well, she also... She also got circled for Octopussy in 82. Um, that was one of the big, her and um, Sybil Danning as well. I mean, I'm, I'm massive team Maud Adams, absolutely all the way. The mm. idea of Faye Dunaway in that sort of Supergirl era, vamping and camping up in Octopussy would have been delicious. But I imagine also, you know, if I was Julie Christie or Faye Dunaway looking at the script as, as is in the final cut, there's not much to do for an actress that's just on the cusp of doing big, good things. I mean, Julie Christie was um, won an Oscar, so you know, or was about to. So you know, if you think about it that way, I can kind of understand why they may have had a kind pass at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they ultimately cast uh, former uh, Miss France, uh, Claudine Auger, who they ultimately dubbed in the film. So it's kind of like they fell back on their previous success model after trying a few times with these um, up-and-coming rising star actresses. Um, also cast uh, Luciana Paluzzi, um, who got the role of, um, of uh, Fiona. Now, when she was cast, they made the character Italian to better fit her background. But she was hired because she'd worked with um, uh, Terrence Young on a movie called No Time to Die in 1958. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everyone's saying I can't see No Time Today. You can actually go out and probably find it. It is on YouTube. <laughs> uh, and it's got yes, Bernard Lee's in it. Uh, it's Anthony Newley's in it, who uh, had involvement with the Goldfinger uh, tune. Yeah, there's a lot of Bond alumni in um, in the first No Time Today. Yeah, she's quite a great character. I met her a few years back, and she's. Uh, I was like, oh, you're Fiona Volpe. You're kind of slightly intimidating, you know, even though she was. <laughs> brilliantly in her early 80s um, but I'm like oh my god you are still you still look like you could just click your fingers and something horrible will happen yeah she's an actress and we'll talk about her going forward but mm. I've only I think seen her I saw her in one of the like Frankie and Annette Beach movies I think it was Muscle Beach Party I oh, yeah. Just haven't, yeah I just didn't see her in a lot of things but she's someone who has so much presence here that I, I wish I'd gotten to see her in more you know mm. maybe mm. higher level films mm. um, yes so, uh, as production was ramping up, Harry Saltzman brought in playwright John Hopkins to do rewrites on the film. Now, Hopkins was originally brought in to write Funeral in Berlin, but they decided, wait, we need this guy on Thunderball, so they, they shifted him over to that film. His job was to do three weeks of rewrites, and that wound up being two months. There was heavy revisions that uh, Hopkins had done, uh, had to do on the film. And his background was mostly TV, so this was actually a big jump for him leaping into film. Um, some of the changes he made were actually, a lot of it had to do with um, Fiona and just kind of stuff tied to that whole, um, the way her character goes out, the parade sequence, the celebration scenes. Originally it was a much colder scene with Bond hunting down each of her men one by one. He was also going to shoot her in the stomach at the end, which would have been a lot darker, obviously, for the film. Um, he also um, had to deal with um, the issues of, with that character, all the stuff with her commenting on um, Bond making love to women and them coming to the right and virtuous path was actually his addition. That was actually a response to critical 
reactions to the scenes with uh, Pussy Galore and Bond in Goldfinger, which we talked about it on that episode. But even at the time, critics were very critical of this um, very quick shift that Pussy Galore makes after their love scene. I don't know if they were commenting on the way it was depicted in terms of its uncomfortable elements, but they definitely had issues with how quick that switch is, uh, you know, set off. Even if you take sort of the the sexuality of Pussy Galore out of the equation, which isn't necessarily played as, as it is in the books, but uh, it's still an uncomfortable and strange change. You're right. So I could I could see why even critics in those days might bump on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a couple final things here on the actual production. Um, Rico Browning was hired to shoot the underwater sequences. He said he had no real direction beyond that was good. And uh, you should have left it there. He had no real direction. <laughs> Done. So he said it was incredibly difficult to shoot all that stuff. The big fight at the end was brutal because they had no way of communicating other than hand signals. So it took two weeks to do. And um, but he just said, like, the producers were like, yeah, you're, you're doing fine. Keep doing what you're doing, man. <laughs> Go nuts. So Yeah, brutal is another good word. I'll write that down. Oh, Scott, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> now, when it came time to um, to edit the film... Terrence Young had had to bail or chose to bail. It's up in the air. There's a lot of back and forth as to whether he was having issues with Eon and wanted to leave. But the official story, I guess, if you go to the Bond archives, is that he left because he had to head to um, France to shoot a film. And I'm pretty sure that movie would have been Triple Cross, which is another spy film with um, um, Christopher Plummer. So I don't know if that's the official reason, but that seems to be the one they give now that he had to leave. So Peter Hunt edited the movie alone, and he talked about how when they did the final fight sequence, for example, he edited it down to four minutes, but the producers were like, no, make it longer, much longer, because the footage is just too good. So, you know, it's like what Mark was saying earlier about this was something audiences hadn't really seen was like this sort of underwater action the producers were like, go big on it. Like, don't pull back. I will also point out that uh, Triple Cross also stars uh, Claudine Auger and Gert Frobey. Yeah. So, yeah. Got a Bond cast going on there. Young did get invited back. He, there was not much of a cloud of controversy um, when he left Thunder. He was invited back. He was kind of, I mean, to be fair, he was like the Martin Campbell of that first era of Bond. Where mm-hmm. he, he'd set it in motion. He'd set the good beats in motion. I mean, maybe we'll go there, but Thunderball was a mega, mega box office smash, as the experts say. It was, a, and so Terence Young, you know, was perhaps uh, he was definitely. I mean, he worked with Cubby in Cubby's first uh, film, first Warwick film back in the late fifties. So he he was part of that initial family, and he was invited back to do Drives Only. I think uh, McClory even um, tried to poach him to direct Never Say Never Again, which would have been. A little awkward, perhaps on premier night for everyone involved, um, but he kindly <laughs> refused. He wasn't the only one as well. Every every Eon alumni got asked to do Never Say that Never Again, and um, those that did, it got noted. Just that way. So. Why would you mess with perfection, to be fair? Never Say Never exactly, Again yeah. was the best Bond film ever made, and I will uh, die by that. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, do you want a remake of GoldenEye, directed by Martin Campbell? No, I, I, probably not. Just leave it as it was. And folks uh, listening, remember the name Kevin McClory. We will be talking about him in the future. Oh, quite a lot, quite a lot actually. <laughs> and, and for the solicitors listening, everything we said is not true. Kevin McClory made everything, and uh, he is responsible for everything. So uh, yeah, mm. all hail Kevin McClory. 
That's right. So, um, you know, Mark set me up there pretty well, just in terms of this movie being a big hit. It had a budget of $9 million, but domestically it did 63.6, international 77.6, for a worldwide total of $141.2 million. Think of that in 60s terms, people. That is a lot of money. It was uh, number three for the year. The two films above it were Sound of Music and Dr. Zhivago. Yeah, I mean, it, they launched... I mean, Goldfinger started to do it, but the whole... The, and you mentioned it on your Goldfinger um, previous episode, that uh, that's the floodgates gates were open with Man From U.N.C.L.E., Get Smart, uh, The Avengers, and, uh, you know, uh, OSS films. Even uh, Sean Connery's own brother started to come into it a little later on um, with his Operation Kid Brother movie. But... Hmm. You say that you know you couldn't have two Bond films at once. Well, we kind of did though, because there was all these sort of shameless cash-ins and you know the Flint movies as well. They all were having a little bite of that Bond apple, and uh, Thunderball was the one they were possibly all trying to have a little bit of as well so in terms of success, but also just in terms of iconography and and the imagery and how it looked and how it got picked up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when your movie makes 141 million dollars worldwide that's insane and i mean goldfinger had done 125 so this was an even bigger phenomenon so mm. a question i have then is obviously it made more than than goldfinger but was the budget bigger than goldfinger so like should it have not had even made more than it did it feels like the the 20 difference in a million isn't actually that big if the budget is higher the budget was higher by i think like five million dollars or something like that so it was a boost okay yeah i mean but all those 60s Bond films, that first five, six Bond films, I always say they're like a Darwin Ascent of Man, where you just see Bond slowly standing further and taller and higher. And they knew, you know, put the you know, Cubby's mantra, Eon's mantra has always been still is put the money on the screen and people will come. And I think that's, you know, Thunderball is a very good example of that. Yeah, and we will wander down that road in the future where Bond films get really big. Um, and then they pull back, then they get big again, then they pull back. So mm. very much a trend. Uh, just to wrap it up, this movie outperformed a couple other spy films this year. You had The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and The Ipcris File. And this movie won an Oscar for Best Visual Effects. So this, Thunderball is an Oscar-winning Bond film. But that wraps me up for the behind the scenes. Was it? I mean, there's, there has been more Oscar wins in Bond history, but was this the first one? Oh, I think so, yeah. Don't don't test it my memory. second it was the second Oscar. Goldfinger got sound editing. Um, yes. And then, and then Thunderball got special effects, which still staggers me because today we think of special effects as being like Lord of the Rings, Black Panther. And I'm like, okay, so was so we've got to remember, we've got to recalibrate our heads here. That Thunderball was kind of like the Black Panther and Lord of the Rings of its day, and I don't mean that mockingly. It was no. there was a lot of kit. Again, it goes back to kit. There's a lot of uh, effects and thinking and design and miniatures in it. Um, that were groundbreaking at the time, so hence a deserved Oscar. Uh, Bond films since have got a couple of um, best song Oscars, hopefully a third for Miss Eilish if and when um, her retirement comes and the film comes out. Hmm, yeah. Um, well, this is why we've got you on, Mark, is so you can go toe-to-toe with Cam in terms of facts, because I don't know anything. I want someone to out-fact Cam. And you've done so already. So this is you can you can take the lead if you want. He can just sit back. This is this is what we yeah. this is what we need. I'm taking a vacation. See you later, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one, and it's only in my head because I live very near to it. But um, the whole thing of Shrublands, and maybe we'll get there as well. But the whole thing of Shrublands, 
um, came to Fleming when he was convalescing in the mid-50s at a sort of uh, convalescing medical place. And it was in Godalming, which is just outside Guildford, uh, which is just outside London for non-UK uh, folk. And it was Enton Hall that he was staying at when he got the idea for Shrublers and also allegedly for the Goldfinger novel or rather certain beats and aspects of it. So, yeah, Godalming, Guildford. Guildford is kind of key to Thunderball app. So that's that's where my factoids end. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sure you'll dig up some more. No, I do have more. I'll probably have more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's time to dive into it then, if I keep my water puns up. Um, let's go with Mark. You're our guest. Now it's been what? I don't know, since you watched it in the 80s, 40 mm. years since mm-hmm. then? Almost, yeah, 30 what, plus, yeah. What do you think now? I really like it as a beautiful piece of Bond art. Um, I, uh, it's interesting that they always, uh, uh, Barbara Broccoli and the producers even to this day say the hardest hook when they do a Bond film is to just work out what the villain's plot is, what is his ruse, how is the world or a country or a region in danger. And I feel that they were aware of that very early on, uh, particularly after Goldfinger. And I feel that the film gives a lot of time. I don't know if it's too much time. But they really, really give a lot of time to Largo and the missiles and lights underwater and that whole plot. And it's kind of interesting. It's almost like a Bond film told from the side of the villain. Um, but it, there's moments, there's huge chapters where I'm like, oh, oh yeah, Connor, Sean Connery's in this one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think that kind of attacks it a bit. But the, as I say, the visuals, the iconography of that film, whether it's you know, the, the, the orange swimsuits, the sharks, those twirling sharks in shallow blue water, I think, is so, so Bond, and even to this day. Um, and I, I think it's, it kind of holds up, and I don't mean this derogatory, it kind of holds up better as Bond wallpaper than maybe, I'm I trying to think what the alternative would be here. Um, it, but I, I, I saw it a year ago. Last time I saw it was a year ago. I, I was doing a double bill of thunderball and never say never again and we we love thunderball it was but it it kind of just i don't know it it happens around you if that makes any sense it doesn't doesn't have the narrative momentum and urgency that goldfinger does um and and yeah it suffers from pacing issues which goldfinger doesn't um but and then a lot of bond films just kind of stretch themselves to that two-hour limit um because that's what the audience expected um but i do like it i I like i like so much of it i think the Morris Binder's uh, titles are gorgeous. A lot of uh, pop art historians and title design historians hold it high in high regard. All those again, that wasn't seen or done much on screen. Underwater titles, silhouettes in that way. Uh, I love the song. Um, I, I feel it's a sl- it's not as young and plucky a film as Goldfinger, um, but I yeah I I do like it. I, I I it's drags it drags like maybe my answer is now, but it I do like it. Hmm. Well, I mean, Cam, will you share your bowl of conch chowder with us about your thoughts on the film? <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, this is a movie I have this loose tradition of that I try to watch it on my birthday. Uh, it doesn't mm. hold true every year. Some years it just doesn't happen. But it's for some reason become like my go-to birthday Bond movie. And when I sat down to watch it the other night, I had to ask myself why. Like, why is this the movie I come back to? And I have an answer. I think 
there's something about this movie, and when we talked about Goldfinger, we talked about how like propulsive it was. I compared it to like Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it's like it is just set up, set piece after set piece. It's like a machine, and it just really delivers what you would want from a Bond adventure experience. Thunderball doesn't. Thunderball is like operating on island time or vacation time. It's like the vacation time Bond movie. If you enjoy the Bond world, you get to come and just hang out there for like just over two hours. And there's something about that that I really enjoy. I can't imagine really showing this movie to like an eight-year-old now. <laughs> like mm. It's something that I really wonder if like, is Thunderball a movie that will age out of relevance for young Bond fans? It, it might, it might. But for me, I'm old. So I really enjoy spending just the time in the world here. Um, it's set up very early. The Spectre knows what Bond's doing. Bond knows what Spectre's doing, and the two just kind of dance around each other for two hours, just basking in beautiful locations. This movie's all about the locations, all about the technical feats, the underwater footage, the sharks of it all. Um, you know, great-looking actors just taking it easy in the sun. And for me, that's enough. Like, it's a movie that if you ask me, you know, of the Connery Bonds, what is, like, the hangout movie? It's Thunderball. Well, I'd go with that. I mean, it's literally Bond on vacation, and so much of it has that chill and air. It doesn't have that urgency, that, that, that sort of evening, midnight urgency that Goldfinger has. Goldfinger always feels like it's set at night and, and in corridors. You're not quite sure what time of day it is, but it's, it's always kind of April hour in Thunderbird. I like it for that. You, yeah, that's what, that's what I meant maybe about the wallpaper thing, and I didn't mean that in a bad way. It's got that sort of, you can just let it you know, wash over you, literally. Yeah, and you know, you could say that Diamonds Are Forever is another kind of vacation Bond movie. It has that kind of low-key tone, but I feel like that one is playing more with, you know, camp and just kind of absurd comedy in ways that that's what kind of makes it, like, special in its own way. Whereas, like, this one isn't. It's playing it somewhat straight. You're getting all the elements that you would expect from a Bond movie and your villains and, you know, all your gadgets and all your gimmicks and your stunts. But it's just taking its time with them. Just mm. taking it easy. Mm. And it's very aware of itself. It know, like you say, that uh, Fiona Volpe line that of um, the heavenly choirs and Mr. Bond and all these dead women that you've loved and uh, met. Already, the Bond franchise is looking at itself and picking itself apart. Everyone thinks that's maybe a Daniel Craig thing. No, no, look, I mean, it's, it's there in Doctor No as well. Like, I often get asked, oh, "What's the first great reboot of Bond?" I always say Doctor No because it it feels like we've missed three films already. Um, and Thunderbolt's, mm. Thunderbolt does that a little bit as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing I just want to note as well is you mentioned, you know, this movie's quite long. And that was very much a thing in the era because there was a real competition between films and TV. Mm. And the TV was getting to look really good. You know, it's we're a year away from like Star Trek and the Batman 66 show. Like they were really ramping up production values on TV. So suddenly like the movies chose um, that their way of um, tackling this would just be go long and go big. So a lot of movies have massive crowds, you know, cast of thousands assembled on screen, or they're just really long. You watch, you know, like Dr. Doolittle, which comes out around this point, and it's like three hours and nothing happens. That was just kind of their thing. So I think Thunderball may play into that a little bit as well. Yeah, Sound of Music, same year, won the Oscar, you know, for Best Picture. Yeah, that's not a short film. You're, you're, you're damn right. That. That's, I mean, there's, there's reasons why movies are certain lengths they are right now we will recognize and accept that but that was often that that push and urgency to try and give an alternative to te to television which was re you know taking its stake of people's minds and interests so yeah that, that's, that's a perfect example of why Thunderbolt is too 
two days long. Now I'm curious, Scott. You know, you seem a little perplexed, uh, or maybe even tortured. What were your thoughts on Thunderball revisiting it? Well, to to take a twist on the lyrics from Thunderball, I I don't want to break any hearts without regret. You know, I, I, I actually maybe that doesn't work, but either way, I'm not as big a fan as you two. I didn't like it really when I watched it the first time. I, I, actually, I'll, I'll wheel back a little bit. It's a great film in a way. It's got some really great sequences to it. Sean Connery is on fire. He is no doubt in my mind the best person in in history to play James Bond. He is the Bond. But something that you said, Cam, really struck a chord in my head about it being just a more relaxed affair. Like, I feel like Goldfinger was tight. It wasn't really a wasted moment. This is just like you've taken that string and just sort of come in a little bit and it's just, just laxed a little bit. It just wobbles. It wobbles a wee bit, and that's fine. It's a hangout thing. That's fine. But you know, you, this film has twenty-four minutes of underwater footage, and that it, yeah. the first time you see it, it's cool. Second time, okay. By that end fight, which we mentioned earlier, <laughs> I've I don't care. I don't know who is who. I can just about tell who Bond is, and it's all muddled and messy. And you, it, it feels like it feels like they shot all that stuff and they had to put it up on the screen. And I imagine it was very expensive and and I understand that. And, and coming at it from sort of the, this is, you know, special effects in the sixties, this would have been fantastic for someone seeing this on the big screen in the sixties, but I didn't grow up in the sixties. I grew up in the, in the early nineties. So this to me is a bit of a slog, unfortunately. Um, it's the first one that I, if you put it, it's the first Sean Connery Bond in a row now that if you put it on, I would be like, okay. The first three, I would just sit down and watch without hesitation. This is the first one now after revisiting it a few times, I think I would struggle to go back to. And I think that's due to a lack of urgency in the film. Uh, it, it's just everyone hanging out and having fun within the characters. And it's great. It's got some great characters, some great set pieces, but I don't feel that tension, that urgency. And, and so my attention waivers i don't think that's a radical opinion though i mean it's interesting i was looking on letterboxd just the other night at this movie and like its scores are actually quite low it's one that when i was young if you asked you know older people which would be like say my parents or people around my parents age what are the really good bond films they would be like thunderball because thunderball was such a phenomenon in their youth right like it was such a massive hit and it's one that I think nowadays you're seeing a lot of younger Bond fans be like, I don't really like this movie. It's kind of slow. Well, you think about like, um, I'm trying to pick something in between, say Star Wars. You think about the trench run in A New Hope. That's, it looks fantastic. When I saw that, when they did the, when they put them back out in the screens and the cinemas in the 90s before Phantom Menace came out, I saw them all. And seeing that on the big screen, still amazing in, in the 90s. If you show a young kid that now, it looks naff. It doesn't hold up. I don't know that it doesn't hold up. I think it just feels small in comparison to what they would be used sure. to seeing. Yeah. Maybe that's a better wording for it. But I, I think this is just that, but another generation backwards for me. Yeah. And I, 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 Peter Hunt gets, should get a lot more praise than he does for creating the beat and tempo of Bond. Uh, and I feel that maybe with this one, he didn't maybe have so much free reign or he just there was less time or there was more pressure to as we say put on put in all those things that we filmed that we have to show audiences new things and underwater uh it doesn't have that beat of urgency that dr no has or from much of love or goldfinger but then i 
I, I'm with Cam here. I, I kind of like it for its. It is a sun lounging Bond movie. It's taking its time. Um, I wouldn't. Do I want every Bond film to be like that? No, but I kind of like like it for that. And it's it's there's an opulence to it as well. Um, and, it, and it's very jet set. Again, people, you know, younger generations forget. You can you can see anything, you know, any country, city, or locale uh, in any film now. But in those days, they hadn't. There was this stuff hadn't been seen. Some TV shows were starting to do it. Often, Rico Browning, who ended up doing Flipper and showing similar sort of underwater stuff, but it hadn't been seen before. And maybe that's it. I mean, all Bond films should work at the moment they come out. Whether they're timeless fifty years later is maybe not their not their fault, not their problem. Yeah. I think it's a case of perspective, and I think I can appreciate some of the stuff in this film. I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad movie mm-hmm. by any stretch of imagination. We've watched far worse than this. This isn't even in my like middling category. This is a good film. I just don't think it, it's the first one for me that in the row that hasn't reached great. Uh, I mean, could could either of you say this is still in the great category? A lot of people put it up there. I know a lot of Bond fans, and not just the older guard, but I, I know a lot of people love it for its accoutrements as well. Maybe, yeah, sometimes you love a Bond film for its bits, for the, the ingredients, mm. maybe not the final meal or final recipe, but you like the bits. I think some of them definitely that one. Well, I, I did have a question. Um, I think you two would be better off answering it than I am because I, I've only read about two or three Bond books at this point, and I haven't read Thunderball. Mm. Was all this water stuff in the book? less so obviously it took less time and there was there was a submarine as well with bombs on the submarine there was there was more yeah there was less so it didn't perhaps drag in the way that it does although i actually think that the on-screen scenes don't drag i kind of like them they're they're, they're sort of underwater ballet but you're right i don't know who's bond which one's bond you know even when it is connery the underwater stuff with his hair and eyes and the mask you can't quite tell it's connery um but yeah it was there a bit it is one of the novels that's a little more tightly aligned to the film or vice versa yeah it's one thing i found in the movie looking at it through a critical lens versus my birthday um hangout (laughs) night um that you do lose a certain amount of identification when you are cutting to those underwater scenes because it's clearly not you know adolfo selly or connery down there doing these sequences and so you do spend sort of a lot of time just kind of watching things happen because you're not seeing your actors Mm, mm. yeah well let's i think maybe before we dissect any further maybe let's just talk about some stuff we enjoyed i always i like doing that with 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 films so i i think for me this is one of the better bond openers i think it follows on from goldfinger in terms of an exciting punchy opener uh, you know, you get to see the jetpack, which is an iconic Bond moment right there. Yeah, I love the opening. I, I love the punching the widow. I, I, I think that's just hilarious. No, it's not hilarious. It's just dark <laughs> and a bit sadistic. The best. There's a sadism in the Bond movies that I love. Diamonds Are Forever does it. Man with the Golden Gun. Um, Skyfall a little bit with silver. It, it's they're kind of a bit kinky and a bit sick. And it's not because. Uh, uh, Bouvier's in drag. It's just the idea of Bond punching a widow on the day of her husband's funeral. I just, I just think that's delicious and and brilliant and such a visual punch, li- literally. And then we've got the John Barry score, which I also think is um, delicious. It is a great opening sequence, and in some ways, it sets the tone for the movie to come, where you cut to the jetpack and it's a very slow jetpack. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. They're setting us up that the action in this movie might be a little slower than we are perhaps uh, anticipating. But 
it's it, this one also sets the template for um, Spectre villains um, dressing in drag to try to evade notice, as um, obviously Blofeld would do in Diamonds Are Forever later down the road. But yeah, this one has that dark humor, because when Bond punches out the widow, I'm sure a lot of people in the audience just had an immediate gasp reaction. And uh, it's a great fight, and it ends brutally. Like, mm. I think that's something mm. maybe people don't remember, is that it's Bond just choking this this dude out with a poker, and it's like, wow. Like, it's not kind of the flashy shocking positively shocking kind of death it's like a well that was brutal mm, mm. and one of the first times where we have have a little hint jb oh, oh bond's dead you know that kind of becomes a little motif that is often used uh, right up to present day i i had two questions about that uh, the jb thing is the first thing because like it, it gives you that misdirect like jb in, in the coffin you're like oh james bond is dead but then two seconds later you're straight to sean connery mm. i feel like they could have made that like breathe a little bit just see you maybe worried about it they're going to save it for the next film that's the that's, that's the true plan that yeah. is true um, yeah um and and did uh, did women not open doors in the 60s it was a red flag i apparently any woman opening doors means there's trouble or maybe they're a prostitute who goes to bars on their own or something i don't know yeah there oh. was there is some weird mm. etiquette I'm, and i'm not going to profess to know any understand any of it <laughs> It, it just made me laugh in sort of retrospect like that. That was an obvious thing that people in the 60s were like, yes, yes, I would have punched her too. Mm. Mm. Well, it's also that those those agents, those villains uh, lack of etiquette because that, you know, that trips Robert Grant up in From Russia With Love. Um, I, I, and maybe that's just another little example of that. But maybe for the audience to get it, maybe they need to know that it's dodgy for a woman to open a car door on her own. Spectre should really send all of its agents for like fine British etiquette. Then yes. they would be able to escape, uh, you know, a lot better. Yeah, and I want it to be, well, had she not passed, they could put it in a new Bond film and have Diana Rigg as this old countess running the Spectre um, finishing school. Oh my god, we're going back to Spectre Island! Yes! <laughs> yep. It's the place I really want to work. Yeah, we never see indoors, we never see inside. And she has, like, the long poker that she's, like, slapping the table whenever they get something wrong or pick up the wrong fork. <laughs> yeah, with, with a Maggie Smith... Uh, Miss Jean Brody kind of mm. Ed- Edinburgh accent. It's got to have that slight hoity-toity thing. In fact, Maggie Smith could do it. Maggie Smith would be doing this in Bond 26. So it's going to happen. Oh my I'm, god. I'm sold. sold. I'm sold. <laughs> um, like, gents, uh, Mark first, like a, a favourite part of the film? Uh, well, apart from punching the the, um, the widow. That's um, a given. It's a given. <laughs> I... I, I love the first third of it. I like all the shrubland stuff because I'm a big st- a stickler for like sort of home counties of Britain being shot badly uh, versus all this beautiful Bahamas uh, sun and Nassau and blue and uh, warmth. So all, I, I kind of like all the, the Marlowe Buckinghamshire stuff and the the shrubland stuff. And also we get a little cameo from Cub One uh, before it's in A View to a Kill. It's in Thunderball. It's in the car park there. Um, so I kind of like that stuff, although it does sometimes feel like Carry On Nurse. It, it has that sort of naughtiness of nurse of you know, you know uh, coming on to nurses. But I, I like I like all that stuff and the the brother stuff and the um, and the, the big MI6 meeting and that sort of baroque cathedral Ken Adam design, that beautiful matte oh, moment. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that's a great thing because it's showing the old guard of London and the old guard of the British intelligence service versus the high-tech chic of Spectre. And maybe one of my favourite beats and moments is the just that Spectre uh, boardroom table. Um, mm. uh, I, 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 I met Ken Adam. I've met Ken Adam a few times, but the one thing I got him to sign was a print of 
of his design of that room, and I've got it on the wall here because uh, I, I think it's delicious. It's a great contrast with, as I say, with the, you've got the modernity of Ken Adam and the villain's table and their exploding uh, sort of office chairs, and that old baroque painting, London. Um, yeah, I, I, so I like those sort of those those moments in the third act a lot. So I meant the first act. I said the third, but we'll, we'll let let that one go. Right. Um... I, I love that in both cases, whether you're Spectre or MI6, you have these like luxurious meeting rooms. Mm. And I like the contrast between the two, which it's like, you know, the MI6 one, it's like these beautiful paintings. It just looks very ceremonial. Whereas like the Spectre, it's it's big and vast, but it's kind of cold. Mm. And so I like the way they contrast that just with set design. But in terms of all of the, um, the, the clinic that Bond is at... Um, I love this back and forth he has with Count Lippy, like pulling pranks on each other. Mm. <laughs> it's... it's almost like like Police Academy, where it's just like Captain Harrison Mahoney, sort of just doing these these things to each other. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's like this one-upsmanship of gags. And I mean, I, I'm curious, Scott, did you recognize Count Lippy? Well, of course. Yeah. Ipcris File, Funeral in Berlin, Billion Dollar Brain. It is, you know, Colonel Ross or Major Ross. I think he changed titles in between yeah, he, movies, he, but yeah, he had some uh, promotions to during the way. But he, you know, Ross himself, uh, one of the only things I liked about the uh, Ipcris file. I like to think this actually was Ross. And it was just him on vacation, <laughs> and it's James Bond trolling him the whole time. You know, in revenge for uh, Harry Palmer <laughs> getting stuck in that little sauna boxing with a brush. That's like such a Scooby Doo thing. Mm, mm. <laughs> that looked awful though to me that is like my nightmares to get locked in something like that that's like claustrophobia city such a strange and, nightmare and who hasn't not that i've been to many spas or health centers where they have the rack and it kind of you get that weird james bond humping motion thing it's kind of like what's it doing <laughs> but i every time i sort of see a rack or one of those old sauna cabins where you sit in them and your head pops out i, I think of thunderball and the broom the broom handle I just want to hear the oh, direction yeah. notes for Sean in that scene where he's being stretched on the traction and like shook back and forth. Like, Sean, hump that table. Are you sure? Are <laughs> well, you sure? <laughs> the best part is, too, it's played in fast motion as much of this movie is where they speed up the film. Mm. So, you know, when they actually filmed it, it was a very slow, like, and Connery just slowly going back and forth, back and forth. And he's like, Really? Like, how long do we... No, no, keep it going, keep it going. (laughs) You know it would have been amazing to watch them shooting that sequence. But this uh, first section also introduces an element I want to talk about when we're talking about the great things in this movie. And that's Fiona Volpe, who really sets the tone for characters going forward like um, Xenia on a top. Uh, I really love this character. And just... The things they have her doing feel so dynamic, you know, whether she's skeet shooting next to the, you know, the villain there, um, what's his face, Largo, um, but just getting this sequence where she's with this pilot guy who um, opens the door and sees his exact double mm. is incredible. That's not in the book. There was actually just, she just seduced the pilot and that was mm. it. He was the one who, um, you know, conned them basically. He turned on his people. But um, having this whole element of this Spectre agent that she's working with, and then that how that whole you know ties into all, all of her seduction of Bond attempts, this is a super dynamic villain. I'm just curious where you guys come down on her. I I love her, and I, I, she's often the one I often get asked. Oh, um, Bond women, particularly in the 60s, they're sexist. It's 
misogynist, it's all of that, they're there on a pedestal for men to look at. I'm like, no, 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 you've got a ball-grabbing, ball-crunching spectre vixen here who is, she eats the seeds without trying as well. She's got such, she, she's got impatience for her other colleagues as well. I love that. She's like, oh, come on, come on, just keep moving, keep moving. Um, I love her for that. And there's a there's an underlying malevolence about it. And, and she's kind of hot. I love the, the red hair and the, the motorbike and all that. So I, I really like her. She's one of my favourite um, Bond bad women. Well, I, 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 I would agree. I think she's one of the best ones. And she definitely is that template for, you know, Xenia going forward, people like that. I just like that, that nothing's ever made mention of her sex. Mm. Yeah. Like she is, she is a force to be reckoned with. Bond doesn't belittle her. That oh a woman couldn't beat me. It he knows that she's a threat. I mean he does sleep with her, but still. Um and and the film treats her seriously, which is mm-hmm. for the sixties a good thing to see. Yeah, and I I think the Bond films did that a little more than perhaps history. You know, look at Pussy Galore, the previous Goldfinger. She's mm-hmm. you know she's got a she's a businesswoman. She's got her own fleet of pilots. They're all all happen to be women and. Uh, yes, her gender, they make more of it for obvious more film and novel reasons. But I, I you know, I, I think the Bond films have always given a better pedestal or podium to uh, female roles, particularly in the 60s, than a lot of commentators see or would like to acknowledge. I mean, sometimes, you know, just, there's a difference between sexist and sexy. Just because Claudine Auger is wearing a bikini and Thunderball doesn't mean it's sexist. It, you know, the sales of... Um, of bikinis, as a random example, went through the roof when Ursula Andress comes out of the surf in Doctor No, and it was women that was buying them. Women had no problem with it, and I think that also gets forgotten in the Bond films. Uh, women make up a big part of the audience then and now, so they they want to see these great women, you know, who don't get particularly identified by their gender, who look amazing and sleep with Sean Connery and you know get him a little edgy when they're driving fast through uh, Black Park in uh, Windsor. Yeah, what I love, too, with Fiona Volpe, too, is that whole sequence where she's, like, speeding, and you see that she's tougher than Bond in that moment. Like, mm. Bond's the one who's kind of crumbling. But even one of the big iconic moments she has, the one you see played in clip reels all the time, is where she's in the bath and says, can you give me something to put on, and Bond hands her the shoes. She doesn't giggle. She gives him a very cold stare back. And I like how that ties in the character, because a lot of the other, you know... Uh, Bond women, it would be more of a comedic moment for, you know, kind of on the character, or at least they would just be saying, oh, oh Bond, you know, you goof. Um, I like that she's just like, like, just gives him the give me a break kind of look. Mm-hmm. And how this ties into this, whole, you know, we're only four movies in, and already she's commenting on, you know, obviously Pussy Galore in the previous film, but just the whole idea of the Bond girl, that why would she want to, like, jump over to the Bond side? She's happy with Spectre, and not only does she, um, you know, not give in to his, uh, you know, um, <laughs> moral uh, direction after their sex scene, she is even meaner going forward. You know, get that whole sequence when they're like tracking him through the, the parade and she's vicious and gets a pretty good comeuppance. I, I think it's something, though, maybe it's a question is I, I would argue she's the most dynamic villain in the movie. And I think the movie maybe loses something when she's gone because she doesn't make it right to the end the way that Largo does. Where do you guys come down on, I guess, you know, the other villains in the movie, primarily Largo, I guess? Um, I, I would say the, the problem is Largo is not a particularly imposing villain. He is, he's a mastermind. He's a specter agent, of course. But once you get the heavy out, it's maybe not as threatening for Bond. All he's doing now is outwitting the bad guy. If he ever gets into a fist fight with, with uh, Largo, 
Bond's won, and you know it. Mm. The only mm. true threat in this film, really, is Fiona Volpe. Yeah, I. one of the things for me that Thunderball, and it's the worst example, or the best example, and it's the dubbing. There's, for hmm. great swathes of the film, it, it's, Sean Connery's the only one actually, you know, been able to make Final Cut with his own voice. Um, and you have all these actors dubbing for various European reasons. And, you know, Adolfo Celli wasn't quite Gert Frober when, in terms of his ability to enunciate the dialect. But there's, there was still always that concern. And these films get also dubbed into multiple languages. I think people forget that now. There's, you know, there's, there's actors in the 80s. And there's, I'm sure there's a German actor who's played Bond in every... You know, he's done all the dubbing since day one. So, um, but yeah, I find there's a point, and my kind of beef with Largo is that he, weirdly, the dialect just keeps him at bay. So he's kind of talking in italics all the time. It kind of happens in Die Another Day, where the, it's it's just kind of it's like villainous Austin Powers mwahahas rather than furthering the plot. And I agree that actually, when Fiona Volpe exits stage right that it loses that sense of sadistic malevolence because a lot of Bond villains, uh, Bond is could almost have become that villain. Um, so you kind of feel Largo and Connery are almost similar walks of life. Obviously, one's gone a little awry. Um, but although what I love in uh, Never Say Never Again, with the remake a few years later, they have Robert Rietti, who I think did the voice of Largo in this one, um, he then crops up in um, Never Say Never Again, playing himself with his own voice. And I was like, oh, please, why didn't Adolfo Celli dub him in Never Say Never Again? That, that, would, that, <laughs> that was my sort of weird trivia mind, creating trivia that wasn't there. I, I, I remember reading, um, just in the preparation for this film, that one of the things they wanted to do with Largo was have this spectre opposite of Bond. He is mm. a spectre agent. He's, like, he's number two. He's second to, well, Blofeld. And he's meant to be as capable as Bond. But you never really get that impression from him. I can understand the pitch, but I, I, I would always bet on Bond in a fist fight. It's almost like they just relied on giving him sort of superficial, iconic elements, like the eye patch, mm. the pool of sharks. But, you know, when you look at Goldfinger, he has those kind of elements, but he has personality and he has great lines. Like, Goldfinger is incredibly quotable, the character. As well as the movie, I suppose. But also, um, you know, when you jump over to to Largo, like, what are his memorable lines? He doesn't really have any. Um, maybe, I, I mean, I, I kind of snicker when he talks about applying um, heat and cold scientifically to uh, torture Domino. Like, that That kind of gets a laugh, but I don't think for the right reasons. Um, he just kind of, he's more of um an outline of a Bond villain than an actual memorable Bond villain. I, I can get on board with the, with the sense he's very much tied to everything that's going on, so he doesn't feel like he's divorced from it. He's not a character who's kind of standing on the sidelines, but he just doesn't have the dynamic personality. And I mean, okay, let's just say he's just the mastermind. You gotta at least give him a, maybe a more memorable henchman, mm -hmm. because if you got Fiona Volpe going out early, you can't leave me with Vargas. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my favorite line. You can't. I love that line. It's like Vargas does not drink. He does not smoke. Does not make love. What do you do, Vargas? I, I actually, that's kind of my favorite Largo line because it's, it's like that's it. Out and bully one of your staff members in front of everyone. It's like you just outed him horribly. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's yeah, it's and it's weird because it's only the fourth, you know, fourth Bond film, second or third villain in in a sort of roundabout odd way. 
and already it but that's us looking back but already it feels like right you know eye patch shark yacht you know it's sort of austin powers before austin powers yeah i mean i i want to second your love by the way for the uh line he has to vargas like that always gets a big laugh out of me especially with like you can tell he's almost just thinking to himself at a certain point, yeah, being like, "It's so shady." What do you do, Mister Vargas? Like, what do you do? You never come on the. Well, you never come on the stag nights where, where we have like team team meets, and you never we never go to the you never come to the strip bars with us in Nassau. What is wrong with you? Well, um, that's that's yeah. the question. What does Vargas do? I like to think Largo's like rolling around in bed at night. Like, what does Vargas do? Yeah. Yeah, you can you can see him getting up, going. No, really, Domino. What does he do? Come on, take take this camera and go around and follow Vargas. Sod the nuclear threat. I want you to follow Vargas to see what he does. What does he like? What is the strangest thing you could be doing in the sixties that that he's hiding? Oh my god. Uh, um, uh, well, having a male lover. Um, oh god. Okay, we could go yeah. that way. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the vibe I got. And um, I once saw a play actually with the actor uh, Philip something, um, the actor that played him. And um, all I could, I literally, he was like, it was a play of six people at the National. I was looking at it going, Vargas has entered stage left. What does Vargas do? And it's just like, <laughs> there's a podcast. What does Vargas do? What that's does Vargas do? Yeah. <laughs> I took it to mean that, like, what Vargas does is kill, but we also don't get a lot of great Vargas, you know, <laughs> kills. Like, had he been set up earlier in the movie as a, a really lethal assassin, like a Red Grant-style character, maybe I'd be along for the ride, but we don't get that, so it just, we are left with the eternal question. What does Vargas do? <laughs> well, he kind of... He dies well. He, loiters yeah. he dies ran, well. Yeah, he loiters around palm trees and thinks thinks he goes unnoticed, um... Being the most English-looking chap of the uh, of the Adolfo Celli ensemble as well, I, I think we'll be uh, chasing the answer to this question for many years. Cam, just what does Vargas do? We better, yeah. we better. Yeah. We'll find out. It's in your next book, Mark. Yeah, what does Vargas yeah. do? Well, you say that. I, I've been looking and thinking of Vargas for different new reasons. So, um, yeah. <laughs> okay. I want credit. <clears throat> I'm not. I am not doing the Vargas years. I'm not doing the fan. Fan cosplay, Vargas. No, Does that cosplay. mean that we're like the Kevin McClory of the story now? So if you write this book, yeah. we're going to sue you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I'll have a heart attack and die. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, Fleming. <laughs> um, I did just want to shout out to, I think, probably the standout performance in this film, which hasn't been mentioned yet, funnily enough. And that is the pissing dog in the Junkanoo. <laughs> Is that an outtake from Carry On Girls? They have a pissing dog at the beginning of that film. Um, I, I thought I was yeah. tripping. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. There is a pissing dog. Do you know how hard that is to probably set up? That was probably just someone saw it happening and started to film. I doubt that was in the script. Um, it's got to be an outtake, right? We, op- yeah. we open on a urinating dash hound um, <laughs> in the middle of the junkie. Um, well, let's... I, I suppose... Um, we could just sort of talk about some of the main characters and then just find like some bits and bobs and wrap up. So, I mean, Sean's back for his fourth time. I said, when I spoke about the film, he's still knocking out the park. I don't think he's a bored Connery stage and he's definitely not at never say never Connery stage. So I think he's still nailing it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on. I can imagine he was probably a bit annoyed because he's not getting, it's no longer strictly about bond. You know, it's the, it's the real beginning of the accoutrements of Bond, the gadgets, the size, the scale. 
And I imagine that could be quite daunting for an actor, suddenly realising, oh, I'm not necessary, you know, I, I'm, I'm literally just on a, a, a rack here in a health spa, I'm not actually needed. Um, I actually do think his performance is a little... There's there's some cylinders missing. There's a little energy missing. Um, maybe it is literally that loose jet set NASA allocation that's just slowing everything down. Maybe. I feel like in the scene where he's on the beach with Domino and he shoots the harpoon gun and says that immortal line, I think that's that's full Connery on you know, firing all cylinders. Mm, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. And and he looks great. He. I mean, he he looks great. The chest is still there. He's not doing too much Robert Mitchum breathing in, which we get in Diamonds Are Forever, <laughs> where he's literally has got the dad bod. He's kind of still slick. I would say that the, the toupee technology and the hairpiece technology of 1964-65 has maybe caught up with the film. Uh, mm. I remember seeing it big. Yeah, it was about a year ago. I saw it big. and I went, oh, I can see toupee tape covered in foundation. Oh, I really should just be watching this on an old cranky TV rather than HD. Um, but yeah, not going to knock him or the film because his toupee doesn't quite look right. Yeah, this has always been my least favorite of the Connery performances in the first four. Like, I feel like he's mm. on fire those first three, mm. and maybe it is an element of being a little bit um, uh, overwhelmed by just the production size of this one, where you have so many moving parts, and as I said earlier, you have all this underwater stuff um, that he's not really there that much mm. for. It's kind of like, you know, hey, what did you think of Roger Moore in the boat chase in Live and Let Die? It's like, well, I mean, he's there occasionally in insert shots, but he's not really there. I feel like that's a lot of Thunderball is that Connery's on the sidelines. It's also, I think his strength is a lot of this sort of, you know, he was hired because he moved like a panther, right? Like that was the whole story with the actor. And I like when he's doing a lot of stealth stuff. And I think he's at his best in sequences uh, here where he's like creeping around, um, you know, Largo's compound, you know, in the dark. I love that whole sequence and the whole battle in the shark pool. But a lot of the movie, he's a little more passive. It, it's that island time Bond thing where he's just kind of strolling about. He looks great still walking to a casino, but you have a sequence where he's like stuck in a cave and he's just like sitting there waiting for a chopper. And you're like, okay, we're just waiting with Bond. We're waiting. And I feel like that's kind of the, maybe the issue here with the performance, because I think Connery's a very physical actor, and if you give mm -hmm. him a movie like the first three Bond films, he's really barreling from scene to scene and keeps that momentum going, whereas here it's a lot of, look cool, don't worry, the movie's going to catch up with you. So he's got all the elements in the, you know, I think he got the point line is pretty amazing, but uh, I just don't get the fire here that I got from the first three. That's interesting because I, I was saying that my favourite bit is the, the first act with shrublands and all of that, and I'm just I'm just making this up on the spot, but they're, they're all interiors, and he can walk yeah. into a room and he can have that panther poise, and you know we know you know when he's got his, uh, when, even when he's in the interiors in the Bahamas that, that he just he, he does the Connery thing, but when he's outside, I think maybe his wings are a bit clipped on that, and uh, that's when it just he gets slightly lost in the the jet set the curls of it all and maybe this jumps over to another character actually but i feel like the connection with him and domino isn't as strong as the relationships he's had with the female leads before so i think connery really is at his best when he's playing off another actor in this role like when you watch him opposite fiona volpe i think he's great in this movie but you know claudine Auger is dubbed here and we'll maybe talk about domino now but it's a character that disappears for 
pretty significant chunk of the movie and it's just not the the strong dynamic that you get with some of the other um you know bond and his leading lady um you know um characterizations well they're trying to give like three ladies screen time really so one person we haven't spoken about really is martin Beswick as paula who's, who's around as well mm-hmm. and she's in a lot of the marketing um and she gets some screen time but it, they're trying to balance domino fiona and her and then patricia as well in the uh shrublands uh, place at the beginning mm-hmm. for bond yeah. girls technically in this film so they're trying to balance them all at the same time and I, i've said before bond films will usually write one really good female character and then the rest will just not get anything and i think mm-hmm. that maybe applies to this film too yes yeah i i, I kind of don't mind uh, claudie Dozier and domino i i like the sadness of the brother thing and she's she's clearly more close and connected with her brother than bond and even lager i don't know why you're with lager because it doesn't feel like she's really trapped um but i i think she's kind of and this is really that sounds really superficial but she's she's so stunning to look at she's got amazing eyes and amazing that sort of chanel poise that auger had um and i I do know a lot of guys um and girls who really rate claudine auger as one of her their favorite uh bond women Mm. i i I think she would uh be in my sort of top category for that yeah um i i was just uh, when you were talking there mark i was just reminded of paris carver from tomorrow never dies like she's with elliot carver but i mean does she need to be with him really there's some there's something we never really figure out as to why she's there Maybe that's the same thing as, as Largo. I, they mentioned that the cousins at one point that threw me off. I thought that was a weird throw, throwaway line. Mm. Yeah, I don't. I just. I mean, I didn't want abuse. I didn't want her to be hurled about. And admittedly, no. Largo's a bit short with her and standoffish. And that's all we need to see, perhaps. Mm. Um, and, you know, do, do we really need to see domestic violence in a sort of mid 60s Bond caper? Probably not. It's alluded to slightly, I feel. Yeah, like, I think it would be too much to heap on this character. You've already got her in this state of sorrow over the loss of her brother. Then you have her in an abusive, abusive domestic situation. It's like, oh, this poor, poor character. Um, I, I like that they give her uh, some fire. And I, I do really enjoy that she gets the kill on Largo. That, I think, is a really great character moment. Mm-hmm. And Claudine Auger is like, I, I would love to, you know, see this performance through her actual voice. Because I'd just be curious... You know, there's always that dubbed quality that you get through some of these characters where it's like, oh, it's a little bit of a remove. Um, I would like to hear what she actually sounded like doing the lines. But uh, I think as an, you know, a, a visual for the movie, I mean, Claudine Auger is, I mean, unbelievably stunning. Um, I think she works as like an iconic visual in the movie. I just wish they delved into the character a little more. But you know, it, it's really just in comparison. I think she has a bit of a misfortune following um, Pussy Galore, who was an incredibly dynamic character. Obviously, there's critical elements to examine just in terms of the depiction there in the movie of Goldfinger, the way they used her. But, I mean, Honor Blackman had so much fire mm. in that character that when you follow her up with Domino, it probably feels like a little bit of a letdown. Had she followed maybe from Russia with Love, I don't know that those criticisms would be as, um, you know, would hold up as as much. I don't know this. I've just had this thought, and I don't know this for sure. The whole McClory stuff is so juicy, interesting, and sometimes not interesting. It, it was just towards the end. It was a guy that just really should let it go and move on. But I just wonder if perhaps there was a moment or a point in time with Thunderball in sort of production and script development where they 
I'm, I'm probably making this up and I'm probably not right, but they m maybe thought, no, we're not going to change. We are not going to make Domino stronger or better here because we're because this that character is tied to McClory. I think you know. Broccoli Saltzman, even during the production of Thunder, had their eye on beyond McClory. How can we work around him? And you know, the whole Three Eyes Only dropping Blofeld down the chimney was a dig at that. Of, you know, you, oh, we bought back the rights to, uh, to be able to do Spectrum Blofeld. Guess what? We're not going to. That's, so I wonder if almost some of the story and character elements could have had a better embellishment had the you know the, the ownership of those characters the ownership of that script had that not been so sort of in various questions i, I think it'll make an amazing drama I, I want the people that do the crown to do that sort of that period of bond <laughs> history and to tap into what possibly happened because it's 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 a complicated saga that one and you don't want to give the like the outsider a lot of the credit right like i'm sure that there's egos yeah. involved they don't want the outsider who's kind of joined the production to be the one who gets all the credit for these additions. So I, I can buy that that was probably um, at least a low-level consideration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm probably totally wrong. There's um, there's better Thunderball experts out there who might be able to clarify that in time. I, I think we did a, a quite a bit on Largo and Fiona Volpe already. Um, mm. I did just want to touch on Felix Leiter. Who appears in this yeah. film? Yeah, mm. uh, I, I need to ask you, Cam. Where does this Felix Leiter, played by Rick Van Nutter, great name, uh, where does he on your your Felixometer? Okay, so my sister and I, when we uh, during the pandemic, we did our rewatch of all the Bond films, and we would talk on Skype back and forth while we were watching them and comment. We really came around on this version of Felix. Where he's just like this dorky guy who's like walking around trying to look cool in shades. Um, Rick Van Nutter is not the most charismatic actor, but to be fair, he is dubbed in the movie. Maybe he was even less charismatic originally. I have no idea. But, um, I like the visual. I like this Felix more than I like the one in, um, in, um, Goldfinger. Um, Keck Linder, I think his name was. Mm. Like, that guy was just kind of, like, older and kind of square. You had the scene at the pool where all the women are fawning over this. Yeah. <laughs> very, very pasty older man. But, um, Rick Van Nutter... He looks like he's trying to be cool. I like to think in my own little headcanon, this is a Felix who spent some time around Bond and he's like, oh man, I got to up my cool game. I got to put on shades, baby, and hang around looking mysterious. Uh, so on the bland meter, I believe it works. It's a one to five scale in that one is like not bland. It's a, you know, a, the character actually works and is kind of cool. Like Jack Lord got a one, I believe. I'm going to give this guy... Oh, this is really tough because I know we've got strong ones coming up. So I think I have to give this guy a three. Mm. I'm going to put him right in the middle. I think there's enough there that makes me enjoy him. His dorky Hawaiian shirts, the glasses that I mentioned, you know, the grayish suit. But uh, yeah, we're going to get better. <laughs> he just His Felix Leiter reminds me of the guy at the start of Casino Royale where they're on that mission and there's they're watching the guy and, and he's talking into the earpiece and he's got his finger on his ear and he's like get your hand away from your ear and, and he's like such a new agent he doesn't know what to do with himself because yeah you know, when he knocks on the door he's like oh hi 007 <laughs> socks him in the in the stomach to shut him up like i feel like he's one of those bookworm agents like johnny english was or something where they just shoved him out into the streets and he had to figure his own way out <laughs> yeah I, he's, I don't know if he i i, I again i'm always i have perverse opinions about Bond. All the, I have the upside down ones that no one else has. I love um, Felix in Diamonds Are Forever. 
I just love his line oh. and his end of shift exhaustion. It's like, relax, James. The mouse with sneakers couldn't get through. I just love that sort of. Uh, I mean, that's more Mankiewicz than um, uh, the actor Norman something. Norman Reynolds, I believe. Um, but I don't. That Van Nutty kind of. It's like, is he stoned? Is he? Is he maybe? You know, did he maybe? What's in that helicopter? What? What did they ship over? Um, and he became a curious character into this crazy title film called Foxbat. I mean, what? And it's, it's this uh, 70s, uh, late 70s action film. It was co-written by um, Terence Young, bringing it all full circle, and had a great Roy Budd uh, soundtrack. Well, kind of great. Um, and he was married to Anita Ekberg, who's who cameos sort of in from Russia of Love. Uh, she's uh, was in the Bob Hope uh, Call Me Buana poster that the uh, the villainous agent descends through and doesn't. Uh, doesn't bode well with but he's not my favorite he he kind of looks like an all of our brown advert before all of our brown happened <laughs> <laughs> um there's one other character i wanted to mention but i also just wanted to throw out to obviously we do get m q money penny here they all get their one scene basically um and nothing really stand out about them that even the gadgets are a bit Plain Jane. I will just say that, like, I remember the watch being the Geiger counter, and then the the camera became the Geiger counter as well. That that was strange. It's worth remembering that a lot of the the, the gadgets in that film weren't were not they were created for the film, but they didn't actually exist. Like underwater little mini um, breathing mouth tanks and and the underwater camera. I mean, the famous story is uh, the designers sort of went. I think the army said, "Why are you?" coming up with the uh, underwater camera. That's what we're doing right now. Um, so there's a lot of kit in there that then became commonplace, you know, um, that often happens. Um, I like the film, for instance. I like all the... There's perhaps too much of it. There's too, you know, if you ever see... Um, I went to Bond in Motion and saw some of the fundable mm. designs and sketches, and I'm like, oh God, Ken Adam really just spent so much beautiful charcoal drawing time doing those little scuba dragging underwater sort of things um so there's a lot of kit in it um and a lot of miniatures as well um but i, I kind of like it for that i think the gadgets are good um they're perhaps less pinned to the story than maybe they would have been in later films but i don't mind the gadgets i like um i, I like q's uh summer vacation where i think that's uh, his great it's that's his greatest creation in this movie anytime q's on holiday i'm here for uh, after watching oh, License yeah. to Kill recently, I uh, yeah, I, I like seeing him on location. The only other character I feel like it's worth a mention is the sharks because Cam, you're Mr. Shark. Yeah. Um. So these ones are referred to as Golden Grotto sharks. Not a thing. They invented that for the movie. Uh, there's no such thing. The actually used tiger sharks for the most part. Uh, I think they used maybe some reef sharks as well in the pool scene. I don't think you'd be throwing tiger sharks in a swimming pool. That doesn't really... uh, They're a little big. But, um, I mean, there's great use of sharks and wildly irresponsible use of sharks. Um, You know, we have Felix shooting one. And the way they did everything in that final battle was they put... They actually, like, put cables through the fins, like the front fins, so they couldn't turn. The sharks could only swim in a, you know, straight line. So they were literally aiming sharks at each other and pushing them. Uh, So... Again, uh, very, very irresponsible. The sort of thing you'd only get in like a 1960s or earlier um, film, but it's great usage. I I love watching those tiger sharks swimming around them in the final battle. Uh, It really gives it a lot of atmosphere. You'll probably never get that again. I even like the moment where um, Connery is getting out of the swimming pool and you see the shark darting right at him. 
which was a dead one being pulled on a cable. I don't want to know how it died. Mm. No, I mean, the, I, the, no. the, the shark scenes famously were the beginning of the end for Connery. I think he got a little, a little perturbed on set that the, the safety promises were perhaps not as full and as judicious as they could have been. Um, famously, the plexiglass tunnel didn't quite extend the whole length of the shot or the pool. Um, but I, I'm almost wondering now, because I like sharks, uh, I, I, and I was just wondering, did Peter Benchley watch um, Thunderball? Was there something there? You know, we go full circle, Robert Shaw, Bond villain playing Jaws, uh, playing the shark hunter in Jaws. I, I, just, I just wonder if there was some little seed of, you know, Thunderball suddenly may have started Steven Spielberg's career. Maybe. I wonder too, I mean, in this time, you wouldn't see sharks portrayed on screen that often. Mm. And if they were, it was typically kind of the old creaky way of here's a fin in the water, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and then cut to cut cut to stock footage of a shark or something like that. Whereas here, it's actually actors interacting with tiger sharks um, and being in this pool with them. There's that scene where Connery is very clearly pointing at the shark because it's not supposed to be there. And he looks greatly upset. Um moments like that I don't think you would have ever seen before so I could totally buy that you know Peter Benchley I'm sure he had many many influences but I would think probably you know a massive smash like Thunderball would have at least crossed his radar yeah yeah likewise Piranha (laughs) maybe Mm. not (laughs) there was a Piranha 70s movie wasn't there Yeah, yeah yeah there was yeah uh, what people might not know is we record this on video. We don't release the video, but I, I just watched Cam talking about sharks. I've never seen him light up more. And and what worries me <laughs> is that in his oh. free time, he's maybe something like Chandler Bing in Friends, and he has that uh, you know that uh, particular thing he needs to uh, watch from time to time to uh, you know relieve himself. Don't ask. <laughs> don't tell. <laughs> Um, one other character I want to touch on we've not mentioned. It's one that I think is actually a, a, a problem with the film, which is this character of this scientist played by George Pravda, uh, Kutz, I guess is the character's name, who plays an incredibly pivotal role in this movie. He's introduced with just kind of this offhand line that his laboratory in Warsaw was more peaceful. And you're like, Warsaw? Okay, well, that's kind of strange. And he's i guess a polish character because you wonder like what is the backstory of this guy he shows up at the end he's obviously sympathetic to domino but he's like don't worry i threw the firing mechanism out the window like this guy is actually determining the outcome of the villain plot and then he's thrown in the water and um bond says you know no time to learn to swim like now and uh, we never see him again. I guess he died drowning or was eaten by tiger sharks either way. But what a bizarre character to pop in and have such a major impact on the plot. Even to the point where when Domino says, uh, you know, that he helped me or whatever. And Bond's like, who is he? Mm. <laughs> I love how he makes sure that they get rescued by the skyhook and then just leaves this guy in the water. Yeah, to die horribly. To sharks. Yeah, this this Peter Laurie type cameo guy that just comes in. And you feel, I remember even as a kid thinking... Did they cut a scene here? Because that would often happen on telebroadcast in the 80s. They'd, they'd cut huge swathes of Bond films out. And I was like, have I missed a scene here where he's shown some kindness to, to Domino and the villain's not liked it and they may, they may sort of help each other out in a Jaws, Drax in space type way? Um, yeah, I, I, 
he could come back. Maybe him and Vargas could be, you know, running a guest house somewhere in Nassau and um, exchanging stories of sharks and uh, stoned Felix Leiters. <laughs> um, I did just want to touch on before we wrap up, and that is the Tom Jones theme song. Yeah. Um, I do not know if I like it or I hate it. I, every single time I hear the song, I am one way or the other. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel right now. I'm humming it in my head currently. Any any thoughts? It's a great tune. I know you mean. I mean, it's written from the Don Blackaway said it was written by a guy who's obsessed by Bond. Mm. I thought, oh right, like a stalker or you know, or someone that's infatuated with him. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the first big male Bond song. Um, and then we didn't kind of well, Louis Armstrong's going through the years a bit here. Um, I yeah, I don't mind it. I don't mind it. Um, it's. I prefer the instrumentals that John Barry sort of mm. threads, threads throughout the film, um, if truth be told. Yeah, I'm a fan of this song. It's big, bombastic, like the movie. Um, and, I mean, it's Tom Jones. Like, if you're going to have a guy sing a Bond theme, it's got to be Tom Jones, mm. especially in this era. Uh, so I, I've always liked this one, but I understand why it's not held up as iconic, you know, as obviously the Shirley Bassey, Goldfinger, or some of the ones that would come later. But... I don't know. I've always found it very memorable. Yeah. I think it works really well, and it's definitely superior to the Johnny Cash song that was also flirted with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the Bassie did, and uh, Dion Warwick and others, they toyed with putting a different song in and having you know, Mr. Kiskis Bang Bang, which is threaded through Barry's score in the film. And I, I kind of love that song. I, I love, although the lyrics of um, Thunderball are good. You know, he runs while others walk. That's, that's, that's good lyrics in that, and it's part of the Bond sort of iconography or high. Uh, you know the, the the legacy of the characters, um, but again, it's almost after Goldfinger. Because I always personally think the best Bond songs don't sound like Bond songs, and Thunderball's mm-hmm. trying to already one film later. It's trying to be. Everyone says, "Oh, it sounds like Goldfinger." Well, Goldfinger was the first song to sound like that. No other big Bond song had really done that. And, and then the next time they do a kind of big bombastic brassy anthem but with a guy instead um so but yeah i i i I, yeah i'm okay with it i'm okay with it um i don't think it'd be one that i would skip on a like a bond shuffle but i don't know if i would necessarily seek it out on spotify to listen to it by itself no no, i'm more as i say i'm more of a fan of kiss kiss bang bang i think that's a delicious i think that's better yeah i think that's better and i still think because it's not really it has it was used thematically throughout thunderball i'm like could we not have that as a Bond song now? I'd love it if they suddenly ended No Time to Die with Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang done by Billie Eilish or Florence and the Machine, but that's me going off on a fantasy reverie. Oh, I'd be down for that. Um, what do you think of the score in this movie, John Barry's score? It, it has this sort of <laughs> dreamlike quality that definitely adds to the whole vacation time <laughs> sort of uh, feeling of the movie, but a lot of people do complain it feels very slow. It's one of those ones where nothing jumps out at me if I try and think about particular movements in it. And that usually means that it hasn't got much that is memorable. But I'm not very good at picking up on scores, personally. Uh, Mark? I don't mind it. I, it kind of trickles around. It, just, it is literally like Connery swimming underwater. It's very underwatery sounding. Um, but I, I kind of don't mind it. Um, I, I, I think he has more urgency and more lyricism in You Only Live Twice and Goldfinger. Um, but I, I, I don't mind it. That's a, that's a rubbish flat thing to say. I don't mind it. 
I, that's pretty much what I said, so, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think that's the way a lot of people feel. Um, one last thing maybe to wrap us up before we just kind of get to final thoughts, but um, I think it's something that has to be addressed. Continuity in this movie is pretty messy, as well as um, the entire finale of this movie is this fast motion battle on a boat, and there's a lot of speed ramping in this movie, or not even, just playing the film very quickly throughout. And... It's something that I'm sure at the time they were like, make this feel more exciting. But does it hurt your enjoyment of that, um, you know, particularly that big final fist fight on Largo's boat? No, I kind of see it like it's 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 like back projections on car scenes. It's like scratches on vinyl. I don't mind it because they were clearly trying to go for different tempos, different pace. Um, it, it does look a bit silly sometimes, especially the final explosion. But I... I, I I like it for what it is and the era it is. It doesn't doesn't really ruin the film. Yeah, it's, it's a good example of the film speeding up at last, so um, I don't <laughs> mind it. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit earlier on in the film where um, Domino's brother is replaced with the Spectre agent, and it's a it, they use rear projection for some reason. Whereas you don't you see the back of the other guy's head, so you could have just had an actor and that actor facing each other instead of it having it jump out at you, especially when you're watching it on like blu-ray now this stuff really jumps out at you and that sped up footage in the playing in the screens of the boat it it did make me bump but then i I, the film was a bit too long by that point for me anyway right yeah i've always i i find for the most part i don't mind the the speeding up thing that they do throughout the early bond films it's kind of kitschy to do now it looks kind of goofy but it works for me more or less um i don't mind the projection of the brother here because i feel like the visual is pretty unsettling just unto itself it works very well but um that boat sequence at the end it always kind of drives me nuts because i'm watching connery steer this boat and it's very clear this boat would be exploding like this boat would be running into that ground and i I just can't divorce myself from what i'm seeing on the footage of land flying right at them and these like hairpin turns they're doing Mm. on this boat it's like no i don't buy this but that said, I have watched Speed 2 Cruise Control, and maybe they would have been better to speed that boat up because that movie might have been more exciting. So maybe it was like a rock in a hard place where they're like, we've set this whole thing on a boat. Boats don't go that quickly. So, no, I guess that's kind of what they were stuck with. Well, I suppose then we'll just go into final thoughts. Um, I did have a question to wrap us up, and maybe it's just your insider info, both of you. How much sway did McClory have on this film? He's a producer, but sometimes that doesn't mean anything. Uh, I he had there was a certain sway because he had the rights to it, and that that kind of you know the the court ruling uh, came down on that. I I I, f- I personally feel that uh, Eon Cubby and Harry Saltzman they worked around the issue and and just you know it was like being given a an intern that they can't not that Kevin McClure was an intern, but it's a bit like giving a like one of those work exchange things. It's like, okay, yeah, we've got the guy coming from the other office and um, we're just going to do our thing, but make him feel involved. I mean, he did have involvement. He did do more. Uh, there's a lot of Kevin McClory, particularly in the Nassau scenes, his friends, his associates. Um, I mean, there's a whole documentary about all the, the socialites and the, the Fleming friends and the Fleming alumni that are peppering the casino and the bar and hotel scenes in the film. And, the, and McClory, likewise, he pops up in a cameo or two. Uh, I, I personally think he became a little bit of a hanger-on, just trying to eke out that one moment in Bond's time that he, he had access and ownership on. Um, but I, I don't feel the film is 
has got problems because of him. I, I could be wrong, but yeah, you know, I mean, he, him and uh, Connery got on immensely. Uh, obviously, they, I mean, they did other things other than Never Say Never Again. Um, but I don't, I don't think we can put some of the film's faults at his feet totally. I think the, it was the first big Bond film, and they were still seeing how to stretch its wings. You Only Live Twice, which comes next to me, feels a bit more contained with its vision and expanse. It, it sort of knows what it's doing. It's got a better grip. But that's probably because it they learned how to, to you know elongate the image you know literally as well as one of the first big widescreen Bond films. They learned that in Thunderball. Every Bond film is often a stepping stone to what comes next, probably even now. I, I feel like he was probably giving a lot of creative input. I don't think they were giving him control of this production at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you wonder too, it's kind of just like lost to the sands of time how many of the ideas that wound up in those in the, in the finished you know original screenplay from the 50s he actually had a hand in like mm. i don't really know what he contributed in the first place so whether he had for example you know there's like elements like uh you know domino i don't know like did he have any insight into the character of domino when they created that story i i don't know so it's tough to say maybe he had strong opinions about things that he'd contributed but we don't really know anymore what those were. Mm. At least I couldn't find it. Yeah, I did. I did some a piece on Never Say Never Again last year, and I started to research all the different incarnations of the McClory versions. You know, and uh, you know, it was like you say, it was uh, Longitude seventy eight West, James Bond of the British Secret Service, Warhead. Then there was Warhead two thousand. He was forever taking out uh, trade press adverts to to announce films that weren't really announceable yet, and th- there seems a bit of sadness in that. I. I feel he, he wanted a bite of the Bond cherry, but wasn't really there when the, the tree got planted. That's kind of my weird take on it. Um, but there's, there's, there are, there's, uh, there was original draft of the 59 script um, and uh, his original uh, Never Say Never Again shooting script. They went up for auction not that long ago. Um, so there is, those answers can be found out there. Okay. Well, um, I suppose then before we get to the knock list in a second, has anyone got any final notes or final thoughts they want to throw out, Mark? No, I, 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 it's that's why I was keen to talk about it because it's one of the ones I am not immensely in love with or can immensely defend at every turn. I, I still watch it and actually in a weird, good way. Um, a previous viewing, not the one I had last year, but I was watching it going. I don't remember this corridor. This feels like outtakes. This was like a Connery film I haven't seen. Mm. Um, so I kind of like it for that. It's the it's the cousin I see the less. So when I do experience it, I'm slightly more surprised than I thought I'd be. So I like it for that. Okay. Um, the uh, sequence where they're tarping the plane is 4.5 minutes, in case anyone was wondering. Uh, <laughs> I feel like some people probably were. Uh, the uh, character of Paula was actually the final note I wanted to mention, played by Martine Beswick, who I thought was really interesting. I like that Bond just has this assistant. I think he refers to her as his, his uh, assistant out there. Mm-hmm. But, like, he's sending her on her own missions. There's no, like, kind of cheesy romantic come-ons going on. It's just, like, she's a capable agent. She ultimately, you know, takes, like, a cyanide pill or something like that when she's captured. But, uh... I think Paula's a really interesting character, and I mean, we'll see more female agents in the future of the franchise, but an interesting first step in someone who I think had some some actual agency to her, to what she was doing. Mm. Mm. And she's a great ambassador for Bond, even now. I've met Martin a few times, and literally when you see her go, you know, you don't ask anyone, particularly a lady, what their age is, but I'm like, oh my god, she looks stunning. She's got a great energy. She's one of the great Bond girl ambassadors, and, and rightly so. 
Okay, I think it's time to find out if Thunderball sinks or swims. So, Cam, it's knock list time. For the listeners and for our guests, can you just explain what the knock list is? Yes, the knock list is the need to see official classics of the Spy Hards podcast. It's essentially the pantheon of great spy films that you could give that list to someone who was not familiar with the genre, and they would be entertained every time out. So we've got movies on there like, in terms of Bond, From Russia With Love made it on, Goldeneye, uh, Goldfinger, and Dr. No. So uh, all the preceding Connery films. Uh, we also have like uh, Three Days of the Condor, North by Northwest, uh, Hannah. So there's some really interesting picks on there. It's not all just the five-star, all-world-renowned classics. There's some interesting curiosities, but uh, yeah, that sort of sums up the knock list. Yeah, so every week we debate if the film makes the knock list or not. Now, Mark, you're our guest. Yes or no, would you put this on the list of the best spy films of all time? Yes, I'd say yes. It it's, it swims, it doesn't sink. Uh, it, it might not be the most vivacious, pacey Bond movie, but it's it's very, very important for any study of 60s spy, you know, the spikedelic era of uh, spy movies. I think it's, for, so for that reason, yes, it's vital and should be on that list. Okay, Cam? No, Scott, I want you to go now. <laughs> I usually go last. I think I know why you want me to go now, though. Okay, yeah, fine. Um, for me, it's a no. I feel like it's it's a great film. It's a great film. It's a great Bond film. It's probably in the sort of upper echelons of the Bond films. But the the underwater sequences, I feel like the shrubland stuff is kind of pointless to the, the actual story and takes a lot of time. There's a, maybe a good 30 minutes out of this film you could probably just cut out completely and it wouldn't change the plot one bit. Uh, and you just lose water time and, and Connery mugging at the screen. Not that that's a bad thing, but I'm just trying to make it more punchy. And so it's the first one of the Conneries that I could actually throw a lot of negatives at. And so therefore, I don't think it, it's up there with Goldfinger. I was really... This is torture for me because like this is my, this is my birthday bond. But... I'm very aware of its um, faults. Um, I think where I'm struggling is this movie was like the phenomenon that kicked off so much of the, I mean, the spy craze was already starting, but this one would obviously just really kick open the door. So like culturally, this movie was very important. Uh, it also really paves the way for what Bond movies are going to be going forward. You don't get these huge movies like Moonraker. You only live twice unless you have like a Thunderball. Mm -hmm. And when I have a character like Fiona Volpe, uh, which is like an all-timer villain for me, that is also a huge step up. I, I feel like... Can I help you a little oh, bit? Oh, man. Can I, can I help you a little bit? Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. not saying I'm on the fence. I, I'm I'm setting where I think this film is. Yeah. Um, I know this vote, yes, would make it on the knock list. Don't feel guilty. I know the film is more important to you. And I think I, I think you're, you both are probably... Uh, better at looking at this film than I am it, it's it's fresher to me the first time I saw it in completion was like five six years ago and I'm looking at it from a 2020 lens 2021 I should say I, I think I don't have the patience for it but if if you're truly trying to dive into what is the best spy movies of all time maybe there is an argument much like I made the argument for uh our man Flint making the list not because it was a perfect film that film had its faults, but because it was so important to the spy craze of the 60s and that spy spoof genre that sort of went on from there, you know, the OK Connerys, the Austin Powers, the Johnny English, all really came from the Flints. 
And that's why I pitched it. And that's why ultimately that made it onto the knock list. So if you want to hang on to the hat of it's an important film for its place in history, as well as you liking it, I think that's a fair vote for yes. And also, I mean, it's funny, they have a character early on, uh, I think it's a Spectre agent, talk about how like this is uh, Spectre's most ambitious plan ever. And like, this is their most ambitious film ever that Eon has made. It's almost like they're commenting on the project itself that they're making. And to me, this does pave the way for the big Bond films we're going to get going forward. Uh, there's going to be a lot in this kind of mold. Honestly, this is one of my favorites. Uh, this might be my favorite of these big, crazy, ambitious, big Bond films. Um, so I'm going to give it, I think, a a light yes. Um, it's one that I definitely... The, the cracks are starting to show, I think, in the Connery franchise, in the Connery run. I have, well, we'll get to the other Conneries in the future. But to me, this kind of closes out the classic Connery, uh, Connery era. And we're going to be moving more into the, this is a franchise that's got to crank out installments kind of Connery franchise, I feel like, for the next few, you know, going forwards. So I, I feel like this kind of closes off classic Bond, where we're introducing a lot of elements that are going to pay off in future films. This is kind of the last of the building blocks, I think. Mm. And it has sharks in it. It also has sharks in it, yes. <laughs> well, it, it, it sounds like it has uh, swam. It's made it upstream, and it, uh, you know, it is breeding with the rest of its, its pack. You know, it's, uh, it, it, it survived the, the trial and made the knock list, I think. It's a movie like I liken it to Our Man Flint, which made the knock list as mm. well. That it's a movie that isn't necessarily a um, you know home run when viewed in 2021, but its importance really can't be understated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I was the guy championing in that, that film, so I completely understand you taking that that position. And, yeah. and, and Mark, I get your point too. Uh, yeah, and the film it had an importance outside itself as well. The the, the whole merchandising, you know, that mm. that, that was babbling around with Goldfinger and um, the little bits bits and pieces before but that went that went apocalyptic with Thunderball I've got a I've got a, a lunch pail a lunchbox metal Thunderball lunchbox a friend kind of gave me a couple of years ago and when I looked it up there's so there was so much kit and toys you know and it was slightly rate it was slightly part of that Thunderbirds uh, thing as well in Britain but it it's where Bond started to become the, the, the merch filled that filled, filled out kids' bedrooms as well. I think that's mm. important. That's important. Maybe more for Bond than spy cinema, um, but it, it has a big importance in that respect as well. Bond is important to spy cinema, so yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I should also note uh, this was actually my mom's first James Bond movie in theaters as well. Mm. So, and it should be seen on the big screen as well. A lot of the Bonds, we I've, I haven't seen Thunderball. I saw it on a bigger screen last uh, summer last year, but um, it. That they play and breathe differently. I'd like to see actually Thunderball a really big, fresh print, 4K release one day because they they do breathe differently. You're surprised the little bits that felt a bit stale and plodding in older Bond films suddenly you see what the intent was. And I wonder if Thunderball could maybe uh, is deserving of a little uh, big screen retrospective. I actually saw it on the big screen. They had a double feature in my local theater uh, with that and Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Ooh. Weirdly, they played Honor Majesty's first. Mm. I, I, I don't know what was going on there. I don't think the theater people knew. But I will say, in terms of all the underwater stuff, it's far more immersive when you watch it in a theater mm. with just kind of that soundtrack filtering over you. Like, it actually does 
capture that dreamy vibe better than when you're sitting in your living room and there's a dog barking outside. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, mm-hmm. I had the similar experience with Star Trek The Motion Picture. I was, I was never a fan of that film until I saw it at the Prince Charles Cinema in London on one of their biggest screens. And I instantly fell in love with that film. And it's now one of my favorite Star Trek movies. No, we, we forget when we have our franchises that they are big screen events. I saw some of the Prince Charles Bonds uh, over the summer, mm. and it's, they just they breathe differently. And it, you, unless you're there and you see it, it's really hard to explain. That's that's I'm a, I'm a big screen Bond fan and pushing for you know, people to hold back and let No Time to Die play its big screen course, touch wood and all that. But um, I they just you can see the intent. You know, sudden, like you say, suddenly. Yeah, a stuntman falling off to the left. There was an intent to keep that cut in, you know, in front of all underwater. There was there was a reason for it. There was a reason that dog was pissing in the street. But we still big screen, small screen, or on your phone. What does Vargas do? What does he do? Mm. That we still don't know. So. The ultimate ultimate question. Forget the knock list. This is yes. what we need to find out. Um, well, we're doing this for Mama Smith. It's making the knock list. Congratulations. Nice. Congratulations. So, as I say, uh, the dossier on Thunderball is complete and filed as classified. Now, before we talk about next week, Mark, I want to thank you for stepping into the breach this week and uh, joining us for Thunderball. No, it's been good. It's not one of the ones I get to talk about too much. So um, it was good to uh, stretch my flippers and go underwater with uh, Bomb 65. Well, um, tell the listeners where they can uh, dive in and find more from you. Uh, well, I'm on sort of most social media uh, places, but uh, markoconnell.co.uk is my webpage, and uh, basically put in hashtag catching bullets on any of the uh, social media corridors, you'll probably find me. Yeah, I've actually just picked up a copy of Catching Bullets, and I plan to read it on my uh, summer vacation in a couple of weeks' time. So by the time this episode drops, I will have read it, and I'll be leaving a, a review as well. Um, oh, cool. Uh, glowing, okay. of course. Oh Love. no no I, no let's let's not have no I shouldn't jinx that but no I'll be I'm I'm, I'm glad you got it and a, a few people have taken it to the beach so um hope you like it um yeah but thank you and of course all the notes where people can find you will be in the show notes for the episode as well so people can go there and take a look cool yeah for sure thanks a lot Mark no worries thank you guys and a good show as well. And again, I want to thank Mark O'Connell for joining us. You can find links to you know his books and his socials in the show notes for the episode. But Cam. What are we doing next week? Change of pace, Scott. We are going to be tackling the 1985 Anthony Edwards comedy spy film, Gotcha. What? Gotcha. One more time? Gotcha. Yeah, I've never heard of this film. Yeah, it's one that I had not really heard much about myself. And uh, we have been getting a lot of tweets and uh, a lot of people bringing this one up as something we need to cover for a while, like since really the beginning of this podcast. So I'm excited to find out what all the fuss is about. And as a bonus, we got a chance to speak with Jeff Canu, who's the director of the film, to talk about working with Anthony Edwards. And of course, Linda Fiorentino, who is the co-star of the film, who you guys will recognize from 1995's Men in Black. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be a lot of fun, for sure. Yeah, it had a lot of buzz, as you said, on Twitter. So from that angle, there's been so many people asking about it. I'm curious to see why. Mm. So we will find out. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Gotcha and join us next week. Now, of course, Thunderball made the knock list. It's the fourth Connery in a row to do so. That man is uh, 
doing quite well in our estimations. And if you want to see more of the Noclus, you can go to letterbox.com slash spyhards to find the films that made the Noclus and those that didn't. We are, of course, a proud member of Quite the Thing Media and Podbreed Podcast Networks, and you can find out more about those on their respective websites. And don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, what does Vargas do?